This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. This series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network Partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. I'm your host, Aliza Arjan. Today, I'm joined by Reagan Gillam, Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Southern California. We'll be talking about her book, Visualizing Black Lives, Ownership and Control in Afro-Brazilian Media, recently published by the University of Illinois Press. So thank you very much, Regan, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Of course. And, you know, as some of our listeners might know, Reagan is also a host at the New Books Network. And I personally enjoyed many of your episodes. So it's a you know, special pleasure to have you as a guest today. And as you're familiar, we often start by getting to know our authors a little better. So I'll ask you to tell us a little bit about your background as an anthropologist and how you conceived of this book. Yeah, thank you so much. I am a host on the New Books Network, and I'm delighted to be on the other side of the microphone talking about my book um, after talking with so many people about their wonderful books. Um, So this book grew out of my dissertation from my research at Cornell University, where I was uh, where I did my doctoral research. But I became interested in blackness and racial dynamics in Latin America at the University of Virginia where I I did my undergraduate study. And I remember attending an event with an Afro-Colombian activist who came to tell us about black social movements in Colombia. And um, that was where that event kind of opened my eyes to black communities in Latin America and to, you know, social movements and activism there and just to the the conditions of black people in, in different Latin American countries. And so that sparked my interest in that topic. I then took different classes at University of Virginia around race and ethnicity in Latin America, 
classes on, you know, on Brazil, on the African diaspora. And I just became really interested in uh, black people in various parts of the globe. Um, I also, when I started then to do my PhD research, um, I, I went to, to grad school to study, you know, black social movements, um, particularly in Brazil. And around um, 2005, when I kind of started to do the research, the TV de Genshi television network was started or Our TV. And this was a television network that was launched to, uh, with the idea, with the mission of representing Black people in Brazil. And so this was also a time when there were all of these debates in Brazil around affirmative action and different policies to include Afro-Brazilians um, into Brazilian institutions like higher education and in, in the educational curriculum. And so I, I decided to you know, focus on, on, on these topics around social movements through, through media. And I became, I began to study this question of how Afro-Brazilians represent themselves if they have autonomy over media production. And so the book includes work um, on this television network, but I've also expanded it to include short films, YouTube videos, and other images. And, you know, overall, I'm arguing that these media producers foment um, anti-racism by making their programs that center Blackness and you know, telling black stories. Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly am glad that this path took you to this book. Uh, and, you know, I really want to delve into the ethnography in a little bit. But first, I want to set up some terminology that you use and the people you worked with use. So could you speak to what black and blackness mean in the context of Brazil, and how do your collaborators use it as they produce and circulate visual media? Sure, this is such an important question. I use the term black or Afro-Brazilian to refer to African descendant individuals and communities in Brazil. Brazil is said to have the largest African descendant population outside of Africa and receive the largest numbers of African people during the transatlantic slave trade. And so I don't use the term to refer to uh, biological makeup or any kind of essential identity. The people with whom I spoke use the term negro or black to refer to themselves and the work that they did. And then, of course, racial identity can be very complex in Latin America and in Brazil due to the idea of a middle category or a pardo category, which might also mean brown. Um, Also, people can refer to themselves using different color terms um, in Brazil. And so there's not necessarily like a black-white dichotomy. Um, And so Brazil is known as a country that has privileged racial mixture um, and, and saying that everyone in Brazil is racially mixed, meaning, you know, Everyone is a descendant of African, Portuguese, or uh, indigenous descent, and therefore there is no color line and there are no racial categories. And this has been commonly referred to as a racial democracy or mestizagem or mestizaje. But um, as I said, I was interested in social movements and activism, and the Black movement in Brazil has used the term negro or Black to refer to people of African descent. And, you know, to mark the particular kinds of inequality that people of African descent face, such as, you know, uh, inequality in the labor market, access to education, low representation in government, 
um, lack of representation in the media. And so the people with whom I worked aligned with this approach. Uh, they used the term negro or black to refer to people of African descent. And they were interested in creating representations that you know raise these issues around racial dynamics in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is really helpful. And I really appreciate you clarifying what these terms mean uh, in the specific context you're working with. Uh, and, you know, you gave us a sense of your focus on the visual. And I'm curious about what about the visual as a political tool towards anti-racism um, works in your book and in your collaborators' work? And why are the lenses of ownership and control useful in understanding the political importance of the visual? Yeah, so the visual is, of course, really central to this project. And, of course, I look at media production and how it maintains and challenges racism or racial inequality. So researchers in Brazil have shown that, you know, the national media doesn't necessarily depict Afro-Brazilians in proportion to their size as a population, meaning that you'll see very few black characters or actors in film and television. When these characters do appear, they tended to appear through stereotypical or limiting images such as maids or service workers or as other marginal categories. And racism was also rarely explored in the national media. And so the situation can be seen to naturalize the unequal position of Afro-Brazilians. And so the visual becomes really important in imagining different roles for Afro-Brazilians or in depicting them in different ways that acknowledge their complexity and their their multiplicity, right, in ways that don't fit them into these like stereotypical kinds of representations. Um, and then there were also in, in the side of like working in the media, there were few um, also Afro-Brazilians working in mainstream media. And so my book, you know, tries to focus on black media producers. And I ask, you know, who controls the means of media representation, who has access to create these images of Afro-Brazilians. And I talk about in the book how media producers many times recognize the disparity of black people working in the media They knew that this was not natural, but was rather socially constructed through inequality, meaning like access to education and and who can then inhabit these roles of producing media. And so I argue that when the media producers, you know, insist on taking up these technologies of media representation, they're, you know, asserting their right to create representations or just to create media in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this, this is very helpful to know. And something I found really refreshing in the book was the perspective you bring to African diasporas through the visual. And you mentioned, for example, TV da Gente, uh, where we see Afro-Brazilian media makers claim the means of media production through building relationships across the diaspora reaching far beyond Brazil. So... What can you learn about the diaspora by focusing on the work around accessing the means of media production? Sure. Um, The African diaspora is the idea that the movement of peoples from Africa to different parts of the globe through forces such as the transatlantic slave trade or, you know, or migration. So diaspora can be thought of as a condition where you can find people of African descent all over the world. Um, But it's also a process in that it's the ongoing movement of ideas, 
people, you know, influences, connections between people of African descent across borders. So the TV de Genchi or Our TV television network started with this mission to represent Afro-Brazilians, um, but also they had a mission to, in a way to represent like the face of Brazil, meaning, you know, Brazil's multiplicity. So they also had Japanese Brazilians um, as presenters there, you know, there, it wasn't fully just a, an all black um, uh, cast, if you will. But, uh, but they did say that they did want to represent, um, represent blackness and black people. And so the person who started it was named Jose Gipaolo Neto, or he's, he's commonly known as Nichinho in Brazil. And he's a kind of an Afro-Brazilian celebrity. He was a singer, and he's also been on different, the host of different television programs. And so he got the idea for the network from the existence of black entertainment television in the United States. And he didn't really want to replicate everything about BET or uh, black entertainment television, um, but it was just the existence of black television networks in the United States that sparked the idea for him to do this in Brazil. And so he tried to reach out to um, BET executives to learn about running a black network, but this this wasn't really fruitful. It didn't really yield information for him because by then the network had been sold to, I believe it was the cor- corporation. Um, he did reach out then to the Black Family Channel, which was another black television network in the United States at the time. And he managed to get television programs, which he translated into Portuguese and ran on the Our TV television in Brazil. Um, and then they also used ideas for programming from U.S. shows. Um, and so we can see how uh, television programs can circulate through African diaspora networks, also ideas for programs, and then even just the possibility of the existence you know, for such programs or for such networks. And so in some ways, these influences travel more easily than people physically many times. But the African diaspora or these links across borders between people of African descent is, is really important for struggles um, against racism and, and for representation and that they, they kind of spark these ideas of, of possibility. You can look at other groups and say, oh, what are they doing? How are they struggling? Is that something that can work for us? Um, and also just thinking about just different cultural and social influences that flow across these borders um, are really, you know, central for this for this work of, uh, of representation. Yeah, you put that so beautifully, Reagan. And another intervention that you put so beautifully concerns irony. And in the book, you show us how irony becomes an animating force around the contradictions between everyday experiences of racism and the downplaying of racism. So could you speak more to what irony does for black media producers in Brazil? Sure. And this is my favorite chapter in the book. <laughs> I, I believe it's uh, chapter three. And, um, I, I loved doing this, doing this research and um, you know, talking, like looking at these images and talking to the, the people. And um, I mean, I, I mean, I loved it, you know, for all the chapters, but this is, this is one of my favorites. And so uh, one of the ways that 
the, the media that I look at foment anti-racism is to depict racism. And so in Brazil, I mentioned that, you know, there are these ideas of racial democracy or that there, or particularly when I was doing the research, that there, there is no color line. Um, and so the existence of racism has also been downplayed or even denied. And so when people say, for example, the way that this can occur is people would say, you know, this event happened to me, this, this racist thing happened to me, I, w- I was turned away from, you know, I went to apply for this job, I was told that they had no openings, and then someone, you know, a, a white person maybe went after and they and and they were not told that and they got the job. And I think this was racism just as an example. And that, and people, when you tell that to someone, they might say, Oh no, no, that wasn't racist. Um, we don't have that here. You know, we don't, we don't have racism. And so, you know, there can really be this silence around racism or this, you know, denial of it. Um, and, and where people just don't talk about it or, and, or they just didn't acknowledge it. Um, so I looked at these different media productions that, you know, they, one thing they were doing was kind of representing racism with a kind of exactness. And these videos showed exactly kind of how racism works or operates, but they also did it through humor. And one of the things when I, when I saw them, I, I instantly got the joke. I thought, oh my gosh, this is so funny. And I, I realized that everyone would not necessarily get that joke. It's, it's very contextual. So you need to actually understand that the joke is on, you know, the, this denial of racism. And so, for example, I look at these videos called um, Tabon Pra Você, or Is That Okay With You? And it's a YouTube series produced by Erico Bras, Kenya Diaz, and their children, Gabriela and Mateus. And just as an example, um, they have a video where Erico plays a handyman. Um, he comes to the apartment and he thinks that Kenya is the maid. Um, and of course, this family is, they're all, you know, Afro-Brazilians. And Erico, he comes into the apartment. He's hes there to fix something, but he thinks she's the maid and he kind of starts to hit on her. And, you know, assuming that she's, she's the maid and her boss is away. Um, and then, you know, and, and he thinks that she's a maid because as a black woman, she's living in this expensive condo building. You know, he thinks, of course, that's the only position that she can occupy. Um, but then the family comes home and the handyman sees that, you know, they're all black and he realizes his mistake. And, you know, and so there's this humor in the video, but there's also this kind of irony in that. And these videos where they show, you know, how racism operates in a society that denies racism. So in a way, they're, they're saying, you know, if racism doesn't exist, then what is this that's happening to me? Why is this happening? Um, and the humor, it, it turns the lens, you know, toward those who deny racism, kind of the, the joke is on them, those who would deny it, rather than, you know, the people who experience it. Experience it. And so it's kind of absurd, you know, then becomes absurd to deny racism in in the face of such depictions, and these videos really get at these ex, this experience of living this contradiction between experiencing racism as a black person and then being told that it doesn't exist. Right, so there's this this constant you know contradiction of your you know your kind of everyday life, and so the videos also get at this like frustration and anger and the absurdity of this situation which can then kind of be encapsulated, you know, complexly in the laughter or the, the responses uh, to the videos. 
Yeah, this this really makes me think back um, about the African diaspora, right? Like while reading um, that chapter and listening to your response just now, I was thinking about Turkey where I work and the denial of anti-Black racism versus um, the experiences of African migrants whom I worked with. So I think, you know, your, your focus on irony also shows... Um, how you know these contradictions go beyond national borders and is actually a diasporic issue as well. So uh, I, I really appreciated that chapter. Um, yeah, but my favorite chapter <laughs> was the one uh, where you focus on black filmmakers and particularly, for example, you show us that Black film producers respond to the gaze on Black childhood in existing movies. So I'm wondering if you could elaborate on how your collaborators grapple with this gaze through film, or do they render film a medium through which they can speak back to fixed representations of Black childhood? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for this. And I'm glad to know that this was that this chapter was a was a favorite. I also I, I really I really like this chapter as well because um, because of its focus on black children and these themes kind of emerged for me sort of late later in kind of in the writing of the book in that um, I noticed that I, I sort of went through and I was doing the research and interviewing the filmmakers about these films and then I noticed sort of later that. The, that children are commonly protagonists in many of these films by Afro-Brazilians. This wasn't something that instantly jumped out at me. And so I thought about, you know, why children, why this focus on children and what is it doing? And one thing I noticed was that children, children black children are rarely shown in mainstream media in, in general. So if you see if there were few depictions of Afro-Brazilian adults, you see even fewer depictions of black children. Um, and you also see very few depictions of like black families. So then you, you know, you, you see very few children. And, and then if you take a film like city of God, it depicts black children sort of as, as criminals and they're, and they're mainly also black, black boys. Um, and many of the films by Afro-Brazilians, not exclusively, but you'll find a lot of black girls in these, in these films. So I also noted that many of these films, you know, take issue with what black children are seeing or what they're looking at. Um, so the films by Afro-Brazilians focus very much on this uh, gaze of the, of the children. And um, I try to use this idea of the oppositional gaze by Bell Hooks um, to talk about how the, the filmmakers, you know, present these, uh, these depictions of black children that you know, counter these mainstream representations by trying to show the complexity of, uh, of black childhood and, and trying to show um, black childhood as, as sort of a, a coming of age and how black children have to sort of come to terms with, with, with racism as they, you know, as they grow up. Like this is, this is part of black childhood. And so in the chapter, I was trying to take this layered approach in that the filmmakers put forward their own vision of how they would represent black characters or, or black children. And I look at, you know, three, three different films um, by, by three different um, black filmmakers. And, um, and so th these films take, 
the, the approach that centers kind of, like I said, a racial politics to coming of age. And the films show the effects of black children looking at a world that doesn't represent them. And they move to consciousness of their own experiences. And so one of the films, for example, was called Colors and Boots by Juliana Vincenci. And she shows this black girl named Joanna. And Joanna watches this television show um, called, you know, with, with this character of Shusha, who was a, a famous children's show host um, in, in Brazil. She was a blonde kind of, uh, you know, light eyed uh, woman who would host these shows. And, you know, Joanna really aspires to to be on television, yet you realize that Joanna as a girl, as a black girl who has like kind of wild curly hair, she she will never, well, you know, the, the film presents the idea that she, that this is a barrier for her and this is a world that she can't, you know, she can't join. Um, and so we see, and in many of these films, we see the children kind of go from this, uh, watching these films and we see the effects of of watching these this kind of these kinds of representations we see the effects of these representations on the children and and on their their consciousness but then they move um to view themselves with with pride and take a more positive you know view of themselves and so these filmmakers um for, for these filmmakers, black childhood includes this kind of coming to consciousness about race and racism and racial dynamics. And, you know, the gaze is really important here in that the, the children have to kind of pay attention to their, to their own observations of the social world in, in developing this, this racial consciousness. Yeah, for me, that chapter was just so powerful. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we've gone through your wonderful chapters. I want to zoom out a little bit to your broader argument. So again, you've alluded to this a little bit, but in the book, you develop the concept of anti-racist visual politics. So I'm wondering if you could tell us more about this concept and what kind of theoretical and political work um, does it do for Black lives in Brazil and beyond? Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so my idea of anti-racist visual politics ties, it, it ties together the book and it's the idea that Black media producers break with, identify, and challenge racist practices, ideologies, and structures. And I try to use the work of Leith Mullings, um, who was an anthropologist, and I use her work on anti-racist anthropology to think about and develop this idea. And so it involves um, representing racism asserting the right to control the means of production and showing black characters in more complex ways. And so I argue that this foments anti-racism in, you know, calling for and acknowledging, you know, the existence of the role of racism in Brazil, which I, which I talked about has, has been kind of silenced or, or denied. And I, I argue that it's, it's really important to, to depict racism in, in its many manifestations, both structural and personal. And I, and I talk about that in, in many of the different uh, media that I look at, how they, how they specifically talk about racism and they talk about, you know, kind of structural racism as well as um, interpersonal racism um, because of how racism has been denied or, you know, silenced in, in Brazil. 
Um, and then I also talk about, you know, showing black characters in, in more complex ways. And, you know, and again, I, I've already talked about how mainstream media tends to ha- at, the, at the time depicted black characters, you know, with these very limited kinds of representations. So in, in Afro-Brazilian media, you can find black characters who are the protagonists of the story. And in making them the protagonists of the story, they're very central then to the narrative. We follow their own stories, their own narrative arcs. We hear their their thought processes and how they're uh, thinking about and negotiating these different challenges that that emerge for them. And so, in that way, we get these more you know complex characters that show a lot more multiplicity. Um, as well as you, in, in taking kind of all of the media that I look at as a, as a whole, you can see these different kind of positions that Black people will occupy, such as like middle class professionals or, you know, children, like we just, like we just talked about. So they, you know, if you take it as a whole, you can see how there's a lot more, you know, complexity of social positions, of course, that Afro-Brazilians occupy in order to, you know, dislodge these uh very limiting roles that one can find in mainstream media. So, you know, I argue that, um, you know, all of this, like I said, I, I, I argue that it foments anti-racism and that it aligns with the goals of black social movements in Brazil, um, which are to draw more attention to racism, to insist that black people occupy different, you know, roles of, of power in Brazil. And so, um, and so I and and to take part in uh, in the in these uh, in the in in this role of changing images of of blackness and black people. And so I think that it, it does the does this political work certainly for black people in Brazil. And then I think in in a, in a way beyond, one might think about just the role that media plays in um, in anti racism. Um, I. I are all from Brazil, but anti-racism has become a much discussed topic and concept in probably many different places, uh, certainly in the United States, but in other certainly parts of the Americas. And um, and one might think about how media, you know, challenge media aligns with the goals of anti-racism to uh, to represent, you know, black people in or other minoritized communities in ways that maybe align with the political goals of, um, of social movements or, or activism or other kind of progressive currents going on in society. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. 
Absolutely. And I really appreciate how, you know, you link the importance of media, not just for fomenting anti-racism, but also as something uh, in intimate connection with social movements working towards that end. So thanks so much for making all these connections for us. Um and, you know, we are the Mobilities and Methods channel, so I want to ask you uh, about your methodology that led you to this very important work. Um, so I'm curious about what you used uh, in your methodological toolkit to delve into Black visual politics. Yeah, thank you for that question. It, it was um, really interesting trying to, to do this research in that I had to kind of find the the media that I was that I was looking at, and it, it was actually very challenging to to find this media that was to a certain extent. It, it's all alternative media to a certain extent. I, I wouldn't say necessarily underground, but it's it's not mainstream. And so, you know, having to then find find media that is itself not circulated in mainstream uh, is, is, is itself a challenge. And so one of the ways I, I did that, I, I found it was through my initial connections with people at the television network, which is where I started the, the research. And that was sort of the, the largest and probably most mainstream media that I look at. But then I, I moved on to these other, you know, filmmakers. And one of the ways I found them was through like different social media channels like Facebook and um, actually mainly, mainly Facebook. And then also word of mouth and seeing their, seeing their films or uh, some such thing uh, uh, featured in, in other websites. So it was all sort of working through these networks to, to find people. Um, I also then, when I, once I found the work, I would get in touch with the producers and basically I, I undertook, um, semi-structured interviews with them and I would ask them about their, their work producing this media, why they, why they produced it, what kind of ideas, um, led them to produce these particular narratives? What were they trying to say with this media? And so I, I did that, um, with most of the, with most of the media producers. And then I tried to think about how their media aligns with, or doesn't align with kind of, uh, mainstream ideas about race in Brazil, as well as, uh, social movement ideals about about race in Brazil, and think about the way that they're uh, interfacing with these different ideas about race and blackness, and what you know what what ideas are then communicated by their um, by their their media texts, and um, and so I did these, like I said, I did these interviews with people, and then I also participated in the media production when and where I could. So that meant going to different sets with people and um, accompanying them as they produce the, the videos, as well as going to different um, video screenings that people had where they were sharing their videos with, with audiences. And then I would, you know, take notes of course at these different, um, at these different, at these different sites. So that was, those were some of the methodologies that I, um, that I used. And of course, as a, as an anthropologist and an ethnographer, 
I'm also taking note of the just what's what's going on in, in Brazil at the time. So of course I, I did this research in Brazil, mainly in Sao Paulo, Brazil, but I, I have one case, the the vi- the ironic videos that I mentioned are from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. But um uh I was also tracking, you know, the 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 different issues that were taking um, that were becoming very salient in the public sphere around race and around racial dynamics. And, and as I said, at the time, it was um, affirmative action, which was the um, kind of policies to, to facilitate the entrance of Afro-Brazilians and indigenous people and you know, other marginalized people into universities, as well as law 10.639, which was a law to teach um, Afro-Brazilian history and, and culture in, um, in schools. And I, and I say that because many times the people that I was working with would mention these laws and these policies as well. So I had to then, you know, know what was going on within the, the political sphere. Um, and so it was kind of putting together all of these different conversations and the media text themselves, um, as well as the, the current events to think about what the, the media that I was looking at was doing and how it was participating within these, um, within, like I said, fomenting anti-racism and within these different, um, this very sort of charged milieu that I was working in. Yeah, and the very, you know, rich, multi-layered work you've done uh, really reflects itself in the book. Um, another thing I was curious about was... Um, So throughout the book, you guide us through what to see in black media, you know, especially as you explain these uh, movies, moving images uh, or still images. So I was wondering if you saw this work as an extension of your collaborators' projects to control and own the gaze of your audience. And if not, how did you approach analyzing images with your collaborators' concerns and goals in mind? Um, that's an interesting question about the relationship between the goals of the of the collaborators and then and my own goals as a as a researcher. I think that with the collaborators, it was interesting because actually many of them would say that they were not activists, and um, you know they I don't know that they would say that they were participating in social movements. So so there was that sort of. Um, uh, difference, I guess, in in the kinds of lenses that we that we would bring to the to the media. However, they would say that they were trying to produce new images of blackness. They were very much in dialogue, if you will. They they knew very much what was being represented in mainstream media and how they were in dialogue with that. Whether they were um, trying to sometimes trying to replicate what was in mainstream media, sometimes trying to challenge it, other times trying to, you know, deviate away from it. So they all, you know, they were not necessarily all in one accord and they had different kinds of ideas about how, how sort of black people should be, you know, should be represented and what, what, what these messages should, should entail. So, you know, it was, it was a very diverse idea of, I think, goals and, and agendas that, that different people had. And so when I, um, you know, approach this with their concerns and goals in mind, I think I, I definitely um, 
would, you know, listen to them and try to hear their perspective. And I think in many ways I would, uh, you know, align with them in that, you know, these, in that there, there does need to be more representations of, of blackness on mainstream television. Um, I think then what I bring to the, um, to, to what it is they're doing is this analysis of, uh, of anti-racism and of, um, and then in, in, trying to distill these different themes that I see across, across their, their media. Because another thing was they weren't, they weren't necessarily in, in communication with each other, um, necessarily see themselves as being part of a sphere as I don't know that they would say they were producing quote unquote, like Afro Brazilian media. They might say, well, I have my own production company and I'm producing these kinds of films, but I don't know that they would see themselves, like I said, as a, as a larger, you know, group of, group of people. And so I think as well, I put their, put what they're producing in dialogue with, with one another to then pull out these larger themes and, and ideas to find these kinds of connections across this, um, across this media and to think about, you know, what it, like I said, how it, how it aligns with the political situation. Yeah, on a similar note, I'd also love to hear more about how you used images throughout the book. And as I ask that, I have in mind, you know, any images from the book cover to the photos sprinkled within the text. And was your usage informed by an anti-racist visual politics or, you know, what concerns did you have in mind as you also replicated uh, some images and visual politics? Yeah. So yeah, thanks for that question. The, um, the cover was informed by these different images of graffiti that I had taken. And I, I gave these graffiti images to the press and they, and so they chose the graffiti images to kind of sprinkle across the book The the images on the cover are not my images. Those were the images that were, that was made by the press, but in, um, informed, I think, by these different images that I took of graffiti. And so, I, I, like I said, I did the research in Sao Paulo, and in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and Sao Paulo is covered with graffiti um, all over, just all over the place. And so as I would move through the city, I would take these pictures of different, you know, just different graffiti. Sometimes it would be uh, just a beautiful image that I found to be really pretty. Sometimes I, it usually it might have some sort of political message. Um, and so those were some of the images that I, um, that I gave to the, to the press. And then in the book as well, I have uh, stills from, or kind of screenshots from the different media that I'm looking at, as well as these graffiti images that I, that I also took myself. So one of the, in the irony chapter that I mentioned, I look at this graffiti series um, of this particular Brazilian figure, and those images I, t- I took myself um, of you know of this of this figure throughout different in different scenes in Sao Paulo. Um, but then the other images, like I said, were screen grabs from the different um, from the different programs. And basically, I was I was really just trying to give the reader a sense of what they could see in these in these different media productions and really kind of demonstrate my argument of, of what I'm, what I, what I was trying to depict in words. I think sometimes the visual can speak quite powerfully. 
And so, um, and so it's like, you know, there's like this irony of studying the visual, but, you know, but then having to render the visual through the textual, right? You know, there's, I have this sort of back and forth between no, but you have to see the image. Um, So, so there are quite a, quite a few images in the, in the book. And then also I, I wanted for, I wanted people to be able to then access the films as well, particularly those, if it's, if it's, you know, people who speak English, um, which of course the book is written in English. um, I wanted them to then be able to access the films because Many of the many of the films are in are on YouTube. Um, they're they're they have a subtitles, so you can actually watch them. Because I think that the the media that I'm looking at is very powerful, and it really depicts this other side of, of Brazil that that many people would not get if they um, you know in in most like even mainstream representations that that circulate broadly so i really kind of wanted to give people a look into into the into these worlds and into the work that the that the producers are are making cuz i think that the, the i think this work is is very powerful i think it's very very moving and like i said it's it tends to be alternative it doesn't circulate in the mainstream but i think it i think it could um, so that's that was another goal of mine is to really elevate the work that these producers are doing and let people see it and kind of lead them to it in order to um, uh, in order to kind of honor the the work that they did. Absolutely, it's so important. And for what it's worth, I looked up some of those uh, movies after reading the book. So <laughs> hopefully, it will uh, you know generate this kind of. Uh, work that you intend the uh, material to do. <laughs> um, before we end, I want to ask, what is next for you? What are some new projects or questions in which you're interested currently? Yeah, so my next project is on the relationship between Afro-Brazilians um, in Brazil and African-Americans um, or sort of people of African descent in the United States. And so I'm working on another book project where I'm, I'm looking at how Afro-Brazilians, like I said, in, in Brazil, mainly in Sao Paulo and, and Rio de Janeiro, um, again, how they uh, engage with and leverage cultural productions by African-Americans. So just as an example, I look at how these two um, celebrities in in Brazil, um, Thais Araujo and Lazaro Ramos, they put on this play called The Mountaintop, which is was a play produced by a, a African-American playwright in the United States. And the play is about Martin Luther King. And I'm, I'm looking at how they how they put on this play and why. And, and one of the things they, they talk about was how, uh, how they wanted the play about with focusing on Martin Luther King to address racism in Brazil. And I'm kind of unpacking that, that idea of how does a play about Martin Luther King address racism in Brazil? Why would Afro-Brazilians kind of pull from these U S American um, African-American cultural productions to think about, you know, racism in Brazil. And I'm looking at how this challenges ideas of um, Brazilian racial exceptionalism or the idea that 
Brazil, you know, does does not have racism, or if it does have racism, uh, the ra- racism in Brazil is sort of uh, less than or um, more cordial than racism found in other in other countries. Um, and so I'm using these different cultural productions to to think about these ideas about Brazilian racial exceptionalism and about the relationship between Afro-Brazilians and African-Americans and about the relationship between the United States and Brazil. So that's, so it, it goes back to your question about the African diaspora and, you know, these circulations. I'm, I'm not done with, with that question. It's something that's really um, interested me. And then, of course, you can also hear these ideas about like performance and the visual as well uh, coming out, you know, again. So that's the next project. Well, I certainly will be looking forward to that book and hopefully when it's done, we can have you again on the podcast. <laughs> so thank you very much, Regan, for joining us and for your insights. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was really wonderful. And I thank you for all the work that you've been doing to bring this, bring people's work in anthropology and beyond to larger audiences. I appreciate that. And thank you in return for doing the same kind of work (laughs) for as long as you've done it. (laughs) I'm your host, Aliza Arjan. This discussion of visualizing Black lives, ownership and control in Afro-Brazilian media, published by the University of Illinois Press in 2022, is brought to you by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Thank you for listening.